Hey, hello, buddies, fellow Franco fans. It is I, your host, Mr. Jason Rudy, from Desperate Visions Productions, Sacramento, California-based filmmaking company that I founded back in 2007. Uh, We're on post-production now on two films, Lady Hyde and Emmanuel in Sin City. And we are going to be beginning production on the Tracy Triangle and an unnamed fourth film I'm going to try to uh, start production on before the end of the year. So we're going to try to knock out four films, at least film-wise, wrap productions, and then editing, and have those four out in uh, different stages in 2022. But uh, speaking of two, I bring to you episode 47, film 47, from Mr. Jess Franco. Sinner, the secret diary of a nymphomaniac. Who doesn't love secret diaries and who doesn't love a nymphomaniac? I know I like both. Uh, This is 1972, France, 1972. Uh, Original theatrical title in the country of origin. Le jeune intimate d'un nymphomaniac. Secret diary of a nymphomaniac. Alternative titles, UK Theatrical, Diary of a Nymphomaniac, US Theatrical, just Diary of an Info, sounds like a US Theatrical title, one second here, some of my mic, but I'll deal with that later, alright, third title, Les Inesivoles, 77, that's the French Hardcore Theatrical, The the Unsatiable, 77, Uh, Spanish Theatrical, Diario Intimio de una Nymphomania, Italian theatrical uh, withdrawn was uh, Gloriant Intimate de una Nymphomania, uh, Giovanna Donna, Center UK video, just straight center, um, Le Gino Intimate de Rosa, shooting title, MFG, uh, Woman of Pleasure, UK pre release title, BBFC document, uh, Comte Tour Francois de Film Production was the production company. And theatrical distributor is Comme to Francois de Frame Production out of Paris. And uh, yeah, levels look good, okay. Uh, theatrical distributor, uh, Comme to Francois, okay. Uh, and then New Realm SF out of UK. Timeline for this uh, it's shot from December 11th, 1972, and uh, its French premiere, uh, see, in France, was April 26th of 1973. The French visa issued May 4th of 73. UK X certificate issued in January 9th of 74. It played the U.S. finally in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on March 13th of 1974. Uh, played Portsmouth, UK on August 17th, 74. Played Belgium, Brussels on September 5th of 74. Uh, Italian censor Peel lost on March 6, 75, then played Italy Turin, June 21st of 76, Barcelona, June 15th of 79, Madrid, July 17th, 79, and finally Seville, September 9th, 79. So basically played from April 73 all the way to September 79, so <clears throat> over about six and a half years. It's a long timeline. And compared to other films, too, this looks like it played quite a few places. France, uh, UK in different forms, whatever, United States, uh, Belgium, Italy, uh, Turin, uh, Barcelona, Madrid, and then Seville. So 
uh, different theatrical running times on this. France, the CNC version is 73 minutes. Uh, Spain is 86 minutes. And UK is 76.02. Cast on this, of course, the mighty Howard Vernon as Linda's doctor. Doris Thomas as Miss Schwartz, a photographer. The beautiful Anne Liebert as Countess Anna de Monterey. Jacqueline Lorette as Ruth. Montessoret Prouse as Linda Vargas. Yeah, she's the uh, new person that's been coming on to these films as of late because uh, Montessoret Prouse was in Silence of the Tombs and then in uh, Les Ebranales and now in uh, this. So it's cool to see her as kind of the new, like, Britt Nichols kind of filling in uh, since her departure. So one thing I like about Franco is he'll have somebody come in and do a certain amount of films like three to six or ten or however many, and they have those cycle of films, and then the next person comes in and does the cycle, and so on and so forth. Um, and like, uh, let's see, and then another one, Kali Hansa, same as her. This is her like third film now uh, as Gabby Herman. Um, let's see. Do a little readjustment here with the books. Um, as what uh, She plays a stripper in this. Uh, Maria Toledano. But yeah, so Kali Hans is billed as Gabby Herman. So that's her alias, I guess, in this. But yeah, she plays a stripper. Uh, Francisco Acosta as Gina Harris. Uh, Paco, the Countess's lover. Oh yeah, so Francisco Acosta, he, he's billed as Gene Harris, and then he plays the role of Paco, the Countess's lover. Uh, Manuela Pererio plays Mr. Ortez. Uncredited, Jess Franco plays Inspector Hernando, Hernandez. Caroline Rivera plays a seamstress and drug addict, and Elena Samarina plays Angelo, Paco's wife. Uh, cast and crew on this. Credits, director Jess Franco, screenplay Jess Franco, adaptation and dialogue, Elizabeth Ledoux de Nessel, director of photography, Gerard Besson, supervising editor, Gerard Kekoning, music, Jean-Bernard Retou, Vladimir Cosma, presenter, Robert de Nessel, producer uh nicole gutiard still photographer uh is howard vernon again as mario lippert his alias his alias photographer it's one thing i liked about uh doing this podcast is learning that howard vernon was the set photographer and always as mario lippert is his alias for that so it's always cool like he's a lead and then he also is a photographer film stock uh eastman color uh laboratory gtc and music publisher music pour de l'émotion all right, so uh, once again, this is uh, getting all the information from Murderous Passions, Volume 1 by Stephen Thrower. And uh, like I said, if you find this book, pick it up because it looks like it's uh, getting harder to locate. Um, not saying it's out of print because I'm not sure, but it seems to be a little more difficult as time goes on to find it. So if you ever see it, pick it up. Uh, I've seen it anywhere listed from 36 bucks, 35 bucks, all the way up to 55, 65. So, yeah, it's usually the range, 30 something to 50 something. So, try to get on low end if possible. All right. Uh, so, I'll, of course, we do the synopsis with the review portion. And on this, it's uh, myself and uh, Kali from Los Angeles. This um, Kali Sini is, uh, once again, the Zoom episode with me. And uh, we're kind of tackling the. Some of the Kali Hansa ones we're doing, um, Nessa Barnalis and Sinner 
And I think we're going to do uh, How to Seduce a Virgin and Count as Perverse as well. So those are upcoming. Uh, let's see. Okay. <clears throat> Production notes on this. Uh, Le Journal Intimate de Nymphomaniac followed immediately on from Les Banalis, a shooting from December 11th, 1972. Given that Les Banalis, the less complex of the two films, took three weeks to shoot, work on Le Journal Intimate de Un Nymphomania probably extended into January 73, allowing for the inevitable disruption of the Christmas and New Year period. So yeah, I would think maybe uh, maybe a month or so. And this yeah, so I would say maybe yeah, about three weeks or a month probably to shoot this. Uh, review. <clears throat> Center, the secret diary of an infomaniac, tells the story of Linda Vargas, whose teenage experience of sexual molestation propels her into a deadly spiral of drugs, prostitution, and depression. It's one of Franco's most outstanding erotic dramas and deserves to be thought of as kind of a palimpsest for the other sex films, be they frivolous, sleazy, or disturbing. Franco, as always, is fascinated by beautiful women, especially beautiful women in live sex shows. Here, though, his voyeurism takes account of the possibility that the girls cavorting on stage for the enjoyment of punters may be nursing terrible feelings of inue, disappointment, and betrayal. It is therefore one of Franco's most complex and emotionally mature films and stands up well to repeated viewing. That's cool. Yeah, I, I uh, tend to dwell on that with my writings and films as well. So, um, find a eager viewer here. Uh, the story is told ecliptically, beginning with a perplexing scene in which Linda a young prostitute commits suicide in a way that deliberately frames a man called Ortez, whom we've just seen her pick up. From here, we accompany Ortez's wife, Ruth, as she tries to make sense of what's happened. She's convinced her husband is no killer, so why would a suicidal hooker apparently frame him for the murder? Ruth is adeptly played by Jacqueline Laurent as a repressed middle-class snob. Initially unsympathetic to the prostitute whose death she perceives as having ruined her marriage. During her first encounter with Linda's friend, the Countess Anta de Monterey, she disdainfully remarks, I can't imagine that there could be anything between you, a woman of refinement and breeding, and some cheap little streetwalker. It's this sort of attitude which Franco sets off to subvert. The film takes Ruth on a journey that will radically reshape her attitudes, puncture her prejudice, and inspire her to avenge Linda's suffering. The true, rela- the true nature of the relationship between Linda and the man she framed for murder is revealed during a Bravo flashback sequence to her teenage years when she was sexually assaulted while visiting a fairground. The middle-aged attacker whom we see trailing her through the streets in broad daylight was Ortez. The molestation which takes place on the Ferris wheel is brilliantly shot by Franco with a handheld camera, perfectly capturing a cramped, unbearable encounter with a sleazeball who won't take no for an answer. The sound, too, is skillfully arranged by editor Gerard Kikonin with a calliope swirling in and out of the mix, intersped with a grinding rock riff and the insistent creaking of the Ferris wheel. The fairground music, with its combination of happy childhood, emphasizes the girl's tender age. The cynically rotating rock riff plays the part of the aggressive male intruder, and the naturalistic creaks of the Ferris wheel offset the delirium with harsh daylight reality. The truth of the assault emerges when Linda's friend Maria reads to Ruth from Linda's depressive and nihilistic diaries. By now, the older woman has transcended 
transcended middle-class propriety to emphasize with the victim, and although the diary proves that her snot that her sniveling husband was innocent of murder, she can see that he propelled Linda to her doom as surely as if he'd slit her throat. So, despite its frequently nods to titillation, Sinner is essentially a morality tale. A compassionate script makes us care about the victim. There's no slavering, sedian enjoyment of Linda's demise, no siding with the monsters, as in the earlier Nightmares Come at Night. It's the flip side to films like Justine and Eugene, the story of her journey into perversion, and that the principal character's suffering is depicted without relish or ketchup or mustard. No, just kidding. Uh, what's important to Franco here is to explore how a girl can slide from innocent naivete to bitterness, and then further into addiction and self-destruction. Linda is ridden over the cruel self-interest of others. No one really helps her, they just desire her. Her friends are either here today, gone tomorrow, drifters, or ships that pass in the night, for whom the pleasures of the flesh eclipse emotional awareness. There's a fatalism to the story, with no way out for the character, challenging us to ask how else the poor girl might reasonably be expected to react. Endless casual sex becomes a refuge from the hurt that life inflicts, and because Linda's emotional nods or needs have her repeatedly spurned, exploited, or disregarded, she comes to see physical sensations as the only currency worth exchanging, the only fun worth having, and the only hiding place from her ever-growing despair. Which brings us to the diagnosis of nymphomania, the, or the psychiatric validity of which is still contested today. In pornography, a so-called nymphomaniac is simply a male fantasy construct, a woman who's begging for it and willing to spread her legs for even the tawdriest of dates. In Sinner, however, the implications are darker. Here, a nymphomaniac is a woman whose appetite for sex has curdled into obsession and self-destructiveness. Linda suffers an awful variety of discordant emotional experiences with the result that she turns to physical pleasure in desperation, unable to respond to tenderness or believe that she might find love. When I'm depressed, as I often am, I think of an enormous reaction. I'm sorry, I think of an enormous erection or the moist warm tongue of a young girl and I feel better. When a beautiful little pussy opens up and groans moist, that's when we really live. Everything else is meaningless and dead, she writes in her diary. Linda's lusts are not cri criticized in the film. It's the way they come to replace a belief in friendship and love that makes them so sad. It's a downward spiral that culminates in one of the darkest sequences Franco has ever filmed. After she's arrested for possessing drugs, Linda is cared for by a doctor, Howard Vernon, who installs her in his private rest home. Realizing she's still very young, he tries to break Linda's dependence on sex and narcotics. Because he refuses her offer of sexual favors, we perceive him as a principal professional, the first really decent man Linda has met. Linda, however, is distraught. She begs for sexual comfort from the doctor and suffers a hysterical attack when he refuses. Montessorette Prowse really lets go in these scenes, giving vent to fit of screaming despair that's the pinnacle of her tenure in Franco's films. 
Linda's emotional alienation makes it impossible for her to feel comfort without sex, something the achingly melancholic musical themes by Roger Davi emphasize very powerfully at this point. Or Richard Davy, uh, yet still Frankie has not Franco Frankie. Yet still Franco has not finished with the psychological descent of the character. Running away from the clinic, desperate for sex, she returns to the nightlife. Soon after, the doctor sees her in the street with a man, consumed to be a fury of disgust. Consumed by a fury of disgust, he accuses her of being a prostitute. To Linda's mute horror, he then rapes her, demanding sex as payment for her therapy. His brutish, scornful attitude, treating her as an object beyond the need for respect or companionship, is the final nail in the coffin. If it was as if something inside me had broken, I trusted the doctor. I thought he'd save me, but he was like all the rest. Linda writes in her diary, adding, maybe it's my fault. Maybe I want all these things to happen like a curse. Then she turns her cruelty of others into a condemnation of herself, one last step on the road to suicide. The depiction of a woman the depiction of women elsewhere in the film varies, although the roles are significantly marked by strength and self will. I hate wearing clothes, says the stunning and playful Kali Hansa, as she divests herself of her pantyhose. She plays Maria, one of the film's lighter creatures. Not too bright, but vivacious and energetic. The flip side of the darker roles, a girl who genuinely enjoys her work as a stripper. Doris Thomas's photographer, Miss Schwartz, is a less successful creation, perhaps because she seems more of a wank-mag fantasy of a lesbo-porno photographer than a real person. Sexploitation decisions are taken here and there, but they're also sympathetic to the needs of the story, such as a lesbian scene between Ruth Ortez and Maria as they read Linda's diary. The intimacy has value in the narrative, both as mutual comforting, the two women have been reading about the suffering of another woman at the hands of various men, and also of Ruth's way of ensuring she goes to, she gets to keep the diary, then condemning her louse of a husband to prison. For me, the only total misstep is a small detail during the Countess's voiceover, reiterating her to her seduction of Linda. Linda experienced an orgasm for the first time. She was very small inside. It hurt every time a man aroused her. To my ears, this sounds a little too much like a salacious, dwelling upon virginal tightness. It's the sort of detail that would elicit or excite a sedian libertine, but which clashes to the compassionate context of the film. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, especially if it's the anti-Justine or Eugene. Um, it is because Franco lost Soldad Miranda in 1970 that his films of 71 and 72 are so often bleak and melancholy. Or is it, is it because of that he lost her? Uh, Sinner is a tragic story which finds Franco in particularly somber and reflective mood. It's noticeable that the lighter films of the period are actually the out-and-out out horror films like Dracula, Prisoner of Frankenstein, and The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. It's only later in 74 when Franco has perhaps exercised some of the pain of Miranda's death through such dark and disturbing works as Countess Perverse, El Ocho Lado del Espero, Exorcism, and Lorna, the exorcist, that he can relax for a while and start to have more fun, a development augmented by his growing closeness to Lena Romay and expressed in a quartet of light comedies. Le Chateau Lys, Le Jeune Sœur, Le Grande Modalis, and Celestine, and All Around Maid.
Whatever the reason, Sinner proves that Franco can tell involving stories that transcend the usual exploitative elements, leaving only a smattering of sex to commercialize what amounts to a grueling psychological drama. Franco on screen. Franco takes a minor role as a police inspector, cast and crew. Howard Vernon, Kali Hansa, Doris Thomas, Montserrat Prous, Manuel Prerio, and Anne Liebert all turn up again from Les Ebernalis. In addition to Franco's screenplay credit, Sinner lists Elizabeth Ledoux Nessel, producer Robert D. Nessel's wife, as writer of adaptation and dialogue. Um, the film's extensive first-person narrative does indeed suggest another hand and is plausibly female. While the pop psychology and angst confessional tone suggests mass-market romance paperbacks, the result is nevertheless effective. Franco does not seem the likely author as much of the sheer amount of wordage at this point in his career. It's a bit of a stretch to imagine him writing extended monologues. Music Center's excellent soundtrack was pieced together by sound editor Gerard Kekon, drawing upon library records by Robert Davy, Jean-Bernard Retou, Vladimir Kosma, and H. Tikal, all of whom worked for the excellent and highly collectible music Poron Imoge stable. The film opens with a mesmeric theme for electric guitar, organ, and bongos, based around a simple but implacable guitar riff that pricks out harmonics while the organ broods beneath. It sounds like something that slithered out of a recording studio during the sessions for Pink Floyd's Saucerful Secrets. Another great cue combines delicate dulcimer-like guitar with a shuddering bass line created and bouncing the bow of a cello rhythmically against the strings. Elsewhere, there's a mournful guitar-led piece that sounds like early can, interspersed with a handful of freeform cues from piano, percussion, and flute. The music also used to underscore Linda's erotic frustrations. The clinic can also be heard during the arrival of the dead sequences in the erotic rites of Frankenstein. Cool. Locations. Um, that's cool that the music used to underscore uh, Linda's erotic frustration at the clinic is also the arrival of the dead scenes in Frankenstein. That's cool, the dead and the arrival and the eroticism. Perfect. I like the flip side of that. Uh, location shot entirely in Las Palmas, Gran Canaria. Uh, UK theatrical release distributed by New Realm Entertainments under the title Diary of an Infomaniac. Uh, the film obtained an X certificate from the BBFC on the January 9th, 1974, although it was cut from its submitted running time of 86 minutes 44 seconds. The uncut version released by Mondo Macabro runs 86.39. Five seconds discrepancy is probably just missing distributor's logo. It opened theatrically at the Classic Moulin on Grand Windmill Street. Um, let's see, Classic Moulin. Let's see. Uh, in a March 74. Uh, connections. As Tim Lucas, critic Tim Lucas, has observed, this erotic cautionary tale was presumably inspired by the success of such title as Max Picasso Jr. Soir de Nymphomaniac Forbidden Passions, 1970, and Dan Woolman's Made in Sweden, 1971. Like the films to which Lucas refers, Sinner is a morality tale about the potential for misery and unhappiness awaiting young women in a promiscuous, free, and easy world of sex and drugs. The narrative 
simply suggests Citizen Kane with its post-mortem investigation into a dead person's life and the seeking of explanations for an enigma at the start of the film. Like in Kane, a man's dying words here as suicide. In both cases, the story progresses through numerous flashbacks as the investigator questions the deceased friends and acquaintances. And in both films, the enigma stems from a traumatic event experienced in youth. Other versions, a hardcore version released as Le Insuez 77, the un, uh, the unsat, the unsatis, huh, the unsatisfied, unsatisfied 77 did the rounds of French sex cinema in the late 70s. It's just be like the the unsatiable, but they have it as unsatiated. Um, Apparently, with scenes cut into it from an unknown French hardcore film by another director. The title, Center, with which the film has been sadly lumbered on DVD following a video release as such in the 80s, has nothing whatsoever to do with this story and is one of the more annoying impositions a Franco film has suffered over the years. There's no religious context to the story at all, and besides, who is the center of the film? Uh, certainly not the chief protagonist, who's surely more sinned against than sinning. Problematica. Some sources suggest that the French dub has Yana Samaria's character name as Helena, Jacqueline Lorenz as Rosa Ortiz de Ungra, and Manuel Prarios as Mr. Ortiz. Press coverage. Uh, Gareth Jones in the monthly film bulletin admired the overt sexuality of Maria, but felt that the disappearance appearance of all plot and characterizations by about half the way mark and the incessant use of handheld camera work to a narcotic rather than an erotic effect um, today felt that Marjorie Bilbo of Cinema TV said that today felt the film was a limited interest what there is to say about this sort of sexy baloney except that it demonstrates the fascination that lesbians must ha- have for the male voyeur on this level, it's probably erotic and certainly eventful. So, yeah, and also too, the uh, he reused this formula later. Um, to the best of my knowledge, it was um, I think it's um, um, God darn it, it was one of the first ones I watched too. With um, let's see, get a look at my shelf here. Uh, it was like white skin, black thighs when the guy, yeah, when he commits suicide. And then they go find, uh, yeah, um, white skin or white white hands or yeah, white white skin, black thighs. That one I know. Uh, he uses that same story thing where the guy's white or uh, the guy goes strip club, goes out with the stripper, and then she jumps out the window, and he uh, is framed for the murder. And the the woman's girlfriend has the diary and. Uh, the wife is investigating it and talks to that woman, and as she makes love to her on more occasions, she reads more and more from the diary, and that gives her the information. So, yeah, he remade that later um, with that same context. So, But, yeah, this is, um be totally honest with you, I haven't watched this yet. I've just read about it, and I'm really looking forward to watching it. So um, I think I think I'm going to like it because this is a good period for Franco. I really liked Les Abernalis, the film right before this. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to dig this one too, so... Um, but yeah, and it's like I said, I always like when he comes up with an idea and then uses that idea later on in other films, and it's always cool to see the first film in which that idea comes up in. So, 
Um, but yeah, looking forward to watching this. And uh, yeah, so I think, uh, I don't know, I, I agree with Stephen Thrower that, you know, Sinner of the Secret Diary of Nymphomaniac is a pretty bad title. Probably Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac is probably better than Sinner because she is not a sinner. The world is a sinner on her. So uh, let's see. So yeah, um, we're going to review this with Kali and uh, we'll put this together and hopefully you will like it because I'm sure I will. And I know she's a fan of the film. And she was jumping at the chance to review this film because it's one of her faves. So, um, yeah, looking forward to it. Got a lot of good people in it. Made a good point in Franco's life. Liked the theme. And uh, sounds amazing. So I'm sure it is. So anyway, um, before I wrap this up, I just want to say thank you for listening. And please, uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of us at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. We also have a Facebook page uh, and an Instagram page, Franco Observer Podcast. You can find us there, add us. We're always adding new content, new uh, pictures daily, all that good stuff from the podcast, from different Blu-rays that are out, and pictures from uh, the Desperate Visions films, productions that are going on at the time, and different uh, press pictures and um, promotional photos and that. Um, also, please download and subscribe to the episodes uh, please rate us, uh, tell your friends, please, um, subscribe, let everybody know about the show. Um, help us with, uh, getting some more listeners to the Franco Observer podcast because y'all know how cool Franco is. So even though he's our favorite, it's cool to have more people like him because that means more product will be released. So we know Severin's putting out some stuff and, uh, Wanda Bacabra hopefully is putting out some more Franco stuff and, uh, let's see some more Blu-rays coming out. So... Our mission statement, of course, in every time and every way is praised in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears, and also the names of Lena and Soledad and Kali Hansa and Brent Nichols and, uh, you know, everybody, Paul Mueller and, uh, yeah, everybody everywhere. So, all righty, well, that's enough of me gabbing, so I'm going to get through and uh, start watching Sinner, bad title. I'm going to start watching the Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac, otherwise known as Laura Palmer, Twin Peaks. Uh, hmm, I wonder. Hey, hey, buddies. Welcome once again to the Franco's River Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento-based filmmaking uh, company. And I am joined today on Zoom uh, from Los Angeles by Ms. Colisini again. And she is joining us today to talk about, on this episode 47, film 47, Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac, or also called Sinner. Although I don't really care for the title Sinner. I like Secret Diary of a Nymphomaniac. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and give the... Um, synopsis of the film and then i will ask uh, miss collie what she thought of the film and then we'll talk about the film so here's a synopsis of secret diary of a nymphomaniac linda a prostitute commits suicide but frames one of her customers ortez for her murder ortez protests to his furious wife ruth that he's innocent Ruth decides to investigate Linda's background and begins to piece together what really happened. 
Maria, one of Linda's friends, shows Ruth Linda's harrowing diary in which she recognized her bitter life experience. I'm sorry, which she recounted her bitter life experience. She had been raped by a man at a fairground soon after running away from home, and then again a few months later by the host of a textile uh, firm which she worked for. Struggling to overcome her consequent aversion to men, she had fallen in love with Paco, a married man who professed to love her, but then rejected her when his wife, Angela, caught them together. Turning to the lesbian attention of her friend, the Countess Anne de Monterey, Linda became deeply upset when, she, when the older woman decided, decided to go on a vacation without her, which Linda saw as a further rejection. Getting involved in the porno industry, she met a lesbian photographer, Miss Schwartz, and posed with Maria for nude photo spreads. After being busted for pot, she was taken in by a doctor who tried to cure her of her emotional, affi- of her emotional afflictions, which manifested as a form of nymphomania. When the doctor refused her sexual advances, Linda ran away. A while later, the doctor saw her in the street with a man, and, assuming she'd become a prostitute, forced entrance to her apartment and raped her. Claiming that he was extracting payment of her unpaid bill, Linda fell into a deep depression and became just another lost soul in the city's red light district until she was picked up by the man whom she first raped her, Ortez. So, Kali, what do you think of Sinner, The Secret Diary of an Infomaniac? Um, it's uh, one of my favorites of, of Franco's. Um, I had seen it before, and so it was great that I got to rewatch it for this. Um, I think, I don't know, I, I'm just going to quote from it, if that's okay. Go for it. <laughs> uh, when I'm depressed, as I often am, I think of an enormous erection, or the moist worm tongue of a young girl, and I feel better. When a beautiful little pussy opens up slowly and grows moist, that's when we really live. Everything else is meaningless and dead. That, to me, just sings. That is just magic. I love that that's in a film. I love that like that's the sentiment that she's conveying. And she's, she's just so, I don't know, she's, she's so cynical and yet so, like, a hedonist. And she's just trying to, like, you know, get her happiness where she can. And I... I I can personally relate to that. <laughs> yeah, and she's like the type of person where she always wants to give and to, she talks about to anybody that was scared or, or some person that doesn't have anybody or that is afraid to approach her that she would just take them in and, and, and help them and, and, you know, fuck them and be with them. And, like, she's just so giving in when everybody's just shitting on her and being just striking her down. She still has that hope and that gleam that she's, you know... Yeah, everyone's just using her, and, and she's genuine, you know. There's the other, when I'm buried, they can write on the stone, one who wanted too much love. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's so much gold in this movie. It's just it's, it's insane. So, at the music, it, I, I mean, the movie, the whole thing is such a chance. Yeah, so let's, so let's first talk about, we're talking about how it's quotable, like, her diary. Uh, her diary is really cool and they show like the outside of it. She has like this cool um, Snoopy sticker on it. I was looking at it and it's like silver and there's uh, her drawings are really, really cool in there. There's uh, <clears throat> one thing that's interesting to me. And uh, I think it's in the, if, 
if you have the DVD, it's in the title screen. Is the she has like two aliens that are drawn in the uh, in in her diary. It's kind of cool. It's like I kind of want to go back and look through Franco films before from this film back and see if there's connections to other films, the little drawings in there in her diary, you know, if they're past characters or what, you know, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff in her diary. Yeah, totally. I, <laughs> I mean, I've mentioned on this show before that I've been writing my memoirs. And when I first saw this, my letterbox review just said, well, I guess I don't have to write my memoirs anymore. Cause Jess has said it all. <laughs> I just yeah. love it. Like, I don't know. I feel like, <laughs> like all, all of the sentiments that are kind of expressed in this and, and just that she's journaling it is, is I, I don't know. I, I really love, I relate to this movie a lot. Have you seen the remake that he did of this uh, White Skin, Black Thighs? No. Yeah, it's called White Skin and Black Thighs. Uh, on episode three of the podcast, uh, that was the third Franco film that I saw for the podcast, and that's film 75. So this is film 47, so 57, 67. So, so about... 28 films later he did a remake of this and Kali Hans is in it as well which is kind of cool and yeah it's it's not as good but the same same structure um a woman uh is a stripper in a club picks up a guy jumps out the window after their date the guy gets arrested for trying to throw her out the window even though she did herself the wife comes in investigates meets the woman's lover opens her diary, reads about her past and they go through different chapters of her life and stuff. And so, but it's not as good as, as, uh, as this film is, but, uh, but yeah, it's definitely interesting. And it's, and it's, uh, one, uh, of the uh, Dietrich films during well, that I, era, you know, so Eric yeah, Falks and stuff. Last movie, you give this Kali Hansa. I love that. This is our second one. Again, my name is Kali. Oh God. Kali Hansa is so fucking amazing in this film. Just, Oh, and that's one thing I was to tell you. She wears the same necklace that she wore in the last film. She wears that big necklace with all the stuff on it. That's the first thing I noticed when she was I mean, whipping I, that I, woman in the last film. Because they're wearing so much jewelry. Like, it's kind of ridiculous, like, how much jewelry she constantly has on. And the other women, like, they're just wearing, like, piles of necklaces. Like, yeah. that would get so in the way. I couldn't deal with that during sex. <laughs> yeah. No, it's... it's, <laughs> it's, it's faces and it doesn't... Like you always think it looks going to look cool, but it, during sex, a bunch of necklaces all over you is, is never actually a, a right. Time. It's actually more for the <laughs> show, and then once the show starts, and you take it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but she never takes it off. Like she's always her titties are always like piled with with all those necklaces. I don't know. I I, I just I kept noticing that throughout the film. Like that just looks like such a hassle. <laughs> Yeah, like, great. I mean, it was it was so cinematic, but because yeah. she's quick to take off her clothes because she goes, you know. I hate to wear clothes and I hate clothes. And she takes off her clothes when that guy's wife sitting there comes over to see her and she's like taking her yellow pants off and her pantyhose and everything, you know, but, yeah. uh, okay. So before I go into the film kind of pieces by pieces, it's kind of cool. I was listening to, uh, uh, Stephen Thrower talk about this and he talked about how a lot of Franco films are either about fear or about a desire. And this film is about a desire, you know, and like, say, she killed an ecstasy, like fear and, and all this other stuff. But this is a film about desire. And it's like the opposite of a, a Dassault film where you're not rooting for her as she goes through these bad things. You actually feel sorry for her and you're on her side. You're not you're not anti, you know, waiting for these bad things to happen to this poor virginal girl. You actually feel feel sympathy for her and stuff. And, and you see it from 
that side. And it's interesting that Franco goes through a lot of the sex industry stuff that he does himself, the photography and then to the bar girls and the prostitution and stuff. A lot of the themes that he does in his films, he kind of puts the microscope on that with this and kind of shows the other side of it, which is kind of cool too, you know, some of the despair and, and the other side of it where it's, you know, I'm sure it's, it's all angles, and I love how they how she how they show how she's perceived by everyone else, and they 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 do it without commentary, just sort of like let let you see like um like when they uh, are are kind of coming down on her, and there's one part where the woman is describing her as an infomaniac and just saying that she yeah, she's cruel and has you know, no no morals, no heart, and yeah. That was her definition of a nymphomaniac. She's cruel and without feeling, without remorse type deal, you know, almost like a machine or like a animal type deal. You really, know? we know better because we know that, you know, we know her history and that she was raped and she, you know, has gone right. through this other stuff and she's, she's the opposite of that, really. She's that was the Countess's, yeah, because, and it's funny too, because also this uses the um, Citizen Kane style um, of filmmaking where the person dies and then another person investigates the death and they have a one way of thinking. And as they go through, they change their ideas of what the person went through and stuff. Then they kind of identify with that person and they go and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, so they kind of talk about that with this and it's cool that Franco liked Orson Welles a lot and stuff. And he, uh, worked with them on chimes of midnight and, and other two or three other things. And, and so he always kept that, connection like that which is pretty cool i thought um is that something that you read or or, or was told in or did you well that? no the uh a couple different things i read talk about this with the um the uh, um, citizen kane type of style where it's like after the person's dead and they uh go over their history and they find out more about them and learn about the person and they and the person changes their view of of who they thought the person was or whatever you know Cool. I didn't know that was attributed to just him. Yeah, I mean, uh, and then of course, you know, Franco worked with Orson Welles on a few films. Like he was a third camera on Chimes of Midnight, and then I think Mr. Ar- or one other one and stuff. And then Franco tried to do a Orson Welles script and this and that. You know. Cool. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah her, her character is just fleshed out and and rounded. Though I mean, it. it it's it's more than she's not just a one dimensional nympho where she's just oh, yeah. like woke up one day and was like crazy horny. It's like she has this whole backstory and she's had these different kinds of relationships. You know, she she with the the lesbian stuff. She really felt like like she fell in love for the first well, time. and it's funny too because they're using the title nymphomaniac as a bait to get somebody to watch. They're using it in a salacious term, but if you think about it. It's just a lost woman that's looking for love and trying to get into relationships to be happy, and that's what everybody does. So why is she a nymphomaniac? You know, yeah. that's, that's well, stupid. Well, she's going to pretty much fuck anyone that you know will come across her path. And well, but yeah, but not. I mean, look at her. If you count how many people, it's not a crazy. She's not fucking everybody in the club. She's just with one person and goes another person, and you know, she's just free. You know, it's yeah. But, yeah. but uh, so what's cool is like. Um, so this is the after Soledad Miranda death period and before Lena Romay. So he's still in that kind of thing. And there's a lot of Soledad in this. And I was watching this. I caught a lot of stuff that I didn't read, but I was like, oh, shit, keeping that in, in my mind on the view. And I, especially on the second view, I caught a lot. 
like one thing that's really cool is, well, actually, I'll get to it when we get there. But there's there's a couple of things that I was like, holy shit, you know. Um, so yeah, so um, uh, let's see when I go through. Okay, so when I was watching this, okay, so this was made immediately after Les Abranales, the last film that we watched, um, The Shakers and uh, Mansion of Vice, and it's interesting because to me that film is like a male film and sinner is like a female film because it's the female character and it's all about her and you, and it's from the female perspective from their point of view, the perspective and on the Les Bernalis, it's more about Howard Vernon and his pain of what he felt and his character and all that shit. So it's kind of cool that it's like the male film and the female film. So I personally like Les Bernalis more but I really like Sinner a lot as well. I think Sinner's a really good film, and there's a lot of stuff in there that he used later. And there's other things, too, that I'm trying to, like, it's been bothering me because there's certain scenes in there he used in other films. I'm trying to go through the films that I've seen and pick it out because there's a scene in this film where she talks about the drug trip and Kali Hansa's getting loaded and she's crawling the floor, and then she's raped by those two guys in the party. Um, And then... Franco did another film where <clears throat> it's the guy's bartender and his wife is the woman that smokes weed and she's laying on the floor and she's a really hot chick. And I'm just trying to remember what fucking film that was. and It's been bugging the hell out of me. And I was like, I, it's, uh, I'm like, it's one of the fifties. I anyway, saw, so I, I would go through my books looking through pictures and stuff, but that's bugging the hell out of me. But that scene was in another Franco film. And then another one about checking on this bartender. And, and it was that I'm just trying to figure out what film that was, but, uh, but yeah, so, um, so yeah, so I'm going to start this thing from this top. So first nudity in this film is one second in, just like the last film. Uh, Lessa Varnelli starts off with a strip scene and this is a strip scene right off the bat as well. Um, you have the two women on stage with the red light and automatically, uh, so where's my list? You get, uh, you get, um, that's weird. Uh, yeah, you get uh, jungle sound effects, uh, that's not right. You actually get uh, dancing on stage, stripping, um, red light, and jazz music. So you get those three things on my Franco list right off the bat in that first scene. Um, yeah, great. Which is a nice scene. You see them dancing, and, and it's just on that couch. And, of course, the famous Franco shoots it one way, and then the audience is in the club clapping, and you see it from, another, from the other angle, but it's never in the same, same shot. So uh, he shoots all those scenes, uh, obviously on a stage or in some house or in a room or whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's always separate. I always catch that. It's pretty funny. And uh, the guy that plays Ortiz is like a really scuzzy guy in this, I thought, with his mustache. And, and he's smoking that cigarette, watching her strip. Yeah, that was great how, like, they, I mean, that opening scene set the whole, it was you know, she's staring right at him while she's... Yeah, so, you know, I caught that the second time. First time, I didn't see that as much. But, yeah, you see it in her eyes, and she gives a good reaction where she's dancing, and then she looks at him, and automatically she has this fear and this lost, and she goes vacant kind of for like a yeah. 10 seconds or whatever, and she goes back in. And, yeah, and then she goes right into her mission of what she's going to do and stuff, you know? Yeah, and you don't realize when you're watching it what, what it is that's in her eyes, but you just know that something shifted, and she's... You know, she can't take her eyes to this guy, but she's, she's trying to act cool. But yeah, it, 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 and then she goes and seduces him, and you, you know, you don't know what's happening until it happens. Yeah, and that's um, 
Manuel Pererio, and he's in the last film, Lesser Banalis, and he's in the next few films as well. So he's like a constant. He's one of the crew that's always in these films, you know, for a, for a little while. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so then Linda takes him to another table and uh, gets him really drunk. And then it's kind of cool because then you see, because later on they talk about that, how the women really don't make a lot of money off stripping. They have to buy bottles of champagne and that's where they get the extra money and stuff. And she explains it to uh, Kali Hans's character explains that to the guy's wife later when she's trying to tell him about the business and like how they make their money and this and that. And I thought that was kind of a cool touch how Franco went into that later on, you know, to explain her actions and everything. Oh, and there's a cool thing is when she's getting the guy drunk, I don't know if you caught this, but just before she's about to leave with him, you see all the bottles on the table and there's like a little, like a cookie tin and it's got like a baby doll sitting right on top of the cookie tin. And that was like her virginity, I thought, and it had like a cookie tin of like money. Like that's the price and like her virginity and she's with the guy, you know. But yeah, watch that scene again. It's creepy. I was like, what's that doll doing sitting right on the table, you know? Yeah, that's, that is odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just a little naked baby doll and it's sitting on like a cookie tin and it's and she says, okay, I got to get my belongings. And she stands up and you see it there right in front of her. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that's Franco's little symbolism, you know, like she's, her virginity is for sale or she's holding on to her virginity or whatever that, you know, thing was. But especially with the guy right there who took her virginity, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems to me. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. So then, um, so then she does the deal where she takes up the room and, uh, the music in that scene is really cool. Yeah, like you were talking about the, with the music in this. There's a couple good tracks in this. Uh, and it, there's that one that sounds kind of like a uh, Pink Floyd kind of early 60s. And she was kind of, and he played it a few times. And uh, yeah, she takes the knife, cuts her throat. Or before that, she calls calls the cops and says there's a dead body. Yeah, she totally set him up to. to- yeah. The cops come in conveniently and he pushes the body off and he takes away. And uh, so his wife, I made a note, uh, Jacqueline Laurent. She's uh, in a few films after this. She's in uh, Lorna the Exorcist and she's in like maybe one or two other Franco films. Um, I thought she was really cool. At first I was a little indifferent to her and I liked her the second time I watched her more. She kind of reminded me of Barbara Steele a little bit in her appearance. She's yeah. very cold in that, and uh, but no, she was cool, man. You, you thought she'd be like a stick in the mud, but she gets naked, and she's a great body, and, and she's a good actress, and, and she was down with the film, and she had a good sensibility, and she's a really good actress in this film. I thought she was really fucking cool, you know. Yeah, yeah, she she has like a kind of a interestingly dominant presence for uh, um, with the, in the lesbian relationship. You know, she's kind of like the the. I mean, next to her heroine, you know, she she seems like she's kind of um, topping her. I guess I don't know how else to say it. But yeah, just, because yeah, you see. That. Wait, are we frozen? No, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, because you I see. I keep getting a weird. Um, it, it says my internet connection. Okay. Sorry. Okay. okay. No, I'm here to get on my side, so. Okay, cool, cool. Sorry. Yeah. No, so you see her like first when she goes to see her husband in in prison. And first of all, that's really funny because she's like a good looking woman and he's like this old funky looking dude. And you're like, wow, she's really with that guy, you know? Yeah. And, 
Yeah, I, I, I had that thought too. Like, that's his wife? Like, okay. <laughs> and whenever they have sex, they've never seen each other's body, she tells Kali Hansa later, you know. And she's like, oh, you don't, you don't know if you have a nice body ever? She's like, well, no, me and my husband, you know, we have sex with the lights off. And she laughs at her and stuff. So she's very, you know, tight clothed. And where she wears her hair and everything is, is very, you know, tight to herself. And uh, so, yeah, I, th- I thought she was really cool. <laughs> What's that? And Kali's just riding around on the bed, like seducing her. And oh yeah, yeah, goddamn. She is asking her if you know she she was frightened by it or, or terrified, gross, repulsed by it, or if she was turned on by it. And she says a little of both. And she was just so curious and so excited, but also so scared. And yeah, you know, that, it's kind of it, it, that's a creepy. I don't know. I I think. As a pervert, I, I always love whenever you get that kind of energy from someone. It's so rare as you get older to like, you know, to, to witness that, to to have that like that early fear and yet also like lust. You know, that kind of that right. when, when, when that's coming at you, it's so super exciting. You know, it's no, it's true. There there is a power to that for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of power, this is the thing that I was going to bring up earlier. So before all that. Um, the wife goes to visit. Uh, well, actually, the wife uh, sees Jess Franco, or sees Jess Franco as the cop, and the cop talks to her and says, "Hey, you know, um, you might want to talk to this uh, Countess." Um, and Liebert plays. Uh, uh, let me get her name real quick. She plays Countess Anna de Monterey. So what's really fucking cool? Uh, the thing with the soldat thing, as I kept thinking about. So you see Anne Liebert's intro when she goes to visit her, and she's laying on this like wicker chaise lounge, just like Soldad Miranda's entrance in uh, A Vampiros Lesbos. When you first see her, she's in the bikini laying on that chaise lounge outside. A woman comes to visit her to talk about the business, and she comes, and that woman comes to visit her, and she's wearing the sunglasses, not like Soldad, but she's wearing sunglasses like Soldad, and she's got the brown kind of crimped hair like Soldad had long brown hair, and and uh, you see her on there. And she's a countess as well. Um, and Vampiros Lesbos, uh, Soldad's character, was a countess. And this woman is a countess as well. So there's like all those fucking things I was catching. And she's wearing a... Uh, a uh, yeah, yeah. So all, yeah. all those things I thought was really fucking cool. And that was, I figured, Jess's little, you know, um, Soldad touch in there. I was like, that is Vampiros Lesbos. There's no way around it. This is the exact fucking scene, but just dressed oh. different, you know. Yeah, I didn't catch any of that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen that this a few times, but I, I, I somehow didn't make that connection. So many of Justice films blur and <laughs> kind of nod to one another that it's great that you're able to still see these. I don't know. The, the, yeah, that's one thing about me. I'm always able to catch things. So with this universe, I've fi- I'm knowing it's like. It help, it's, it's helping me because I'm recognizing him using scenes over and over again. That's why it bugged me earlier talking to you about the bartender woman because I'm trying to figure out what fucking movie that is. And I, it's just, I feel like going through all my movies and just fast-forwarding. Just, oh, there it is. There it is. So I figured out what it is. You know? I don't know if it's Bloody Moon. I don't think it's Bloody Moon. But anyway. Um, so, yeah. So you see that. Um, and then we have uh, Close Up the Faces. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I didn't say anything. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, so then we have uh, we have uh, bird sounds, body of water during that sequence, which is really cool. 
And then we go into the uh, situation where she's talking to her about how the woman, uh, um, Linda, um, how she came to be, how she went to the carnival as a kid. And this is where we see his character creepily follow her around. And he just won't, he just keeps going behind her, buying her stuff. And then she finally gives in, buys her some cotton candy, takes her up on the Ferris wheel. And then uh, it's a really interesting scene because watching it as a filmmaker, I was thinking, okay, well, he has to shoot this guy raping this woman in this Ferris wheel in a public setting, probably without a permit. You know, somewhere in Spain, he's shooting this. There's kids all around and families and stuff. You can't, like, show her top with stuff. So I was watching. It's really interesting because he concentrates on her face, her expression, and her hand. There's a shot of her hand grabbing the side of the side of the barrier of like the ride and you just kind of follow it as it goes around and around and and the music where you hear the music when it goes to the bottom when it goes up to the top you hear just more the carnival music and then the rock music when it goes to the bottom and the way he cycles that through is really fucking good it's so distorted. what's yeah. that the music is so distorted it's you know it's like childhood becoming distorted yeah and it's it's I thought it's really fucking really well really shot amazingly. And first time I watched it, I was a little stunned by it. And the second time I watched it again, I was checking it out in different angles and and looking at everything in the whole scene and looking all around it and stuff. And really amazing. And you know, I would think he probably only did that in one or two takes and then was out. You know, and uh, yeah, and the guy f- wanders off and he gets away and then she has to live with it for her whole life. And that's something that she carries. And he sneaks off like a little sperm that swims away, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's haunting. It's really like, it's really haunting. yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really, really interesting how you do something like that and not be graphic and, and, and still really show the, the fucking power of it, you know? Um, you know, like raped out in public in front of everyone. It makes you feel like, you know, there's even less concern for you as a human or a well-being. Like, it's not just like it happened behind closed doors and there was no one there to help. It happened in front of everyone. You know, they went around and around and got to the bottom and the people didn't even stop or pay attention or, you know, help her. And she's, you know, it's, it's, it's like it's not just one person making at that point. It's like the world is, and that's what she says, you know, a few times when she's speaking of her revenge is how she wants you know, to, to get back at the world. And she's just, you know, she's, it's not just the one guy. I mean, she, she definitely directs her anger toward him, but she's kind of holding everyone accountable for, for this. But then she also, you know, makes her point about, you know, how she says, like, maybe it's, it's not, uh, it's, it's really my fault, you know, after she goes for a few years of, of her nymphomania and she, you know, she says that maybe she wants all those things to happen, like curse that, that I, I don't know. I really related to that too. It's just like sometimes you feel like all your, you know, your sexual endeavors that have uh, not it have ended poorly. You know, you, like it might be, is this my fault? Am I wishing all that on myself? Or you know, because you always do that self doubt thing. That, right. You figure it's a it's a penance you're putting through. Is it a lesson you're trying to learn? Is it you start putting different things onto it and instead of just taking it as an experience and moving on? You you know instead of you know people try to turn it into things you know yeah because i mean she sometimes she's blaming all of her experiences for the you know the the rape and he ruined my life and other times she's kind of like well you know she knows she's gone on and had all these experiences since then and and at some point you have to hold yourself accountable and ask you know what you're doing who you are why you're like that and yeah she's all that it's so like 
I don't know. You feel something. <laughs> well, it seems like, I mean, because you have that, and then the, and then she gets a regular job at, like, a sewing place, and then the boss takes her to the room and, like, rapes her again, and then her, her boss rapes her. And then after that, she, like, starts uh, – or, I'm sorry, then after that, she goes <laughs> and she watches Ann Liebert's character make love with Paco – and she like peeps around the couch and watches it with her little pig t- or the little ribbons in her hair, which is funny. I caught that like she's so naive, you know. And she and it's cool because the first two times she's violated, she doesn't feel anything and stuff. And then she watches an example of two people that are loving each other, kissing and showing affection or whatever. And that and so she's like seeing that example, you know, for her. And it's like the first time that she probably sees that or whatever, live or whatever, maybe on TV, who knows, maybe in her life, you know? And so, uh, so then she's just fascinated. So then that switch goes off, you know, and she's like, well, shit, you know, this doesn't have to be a bad thing. This could be a good thing. And then I think that's where she wants to see the good in it and everything. So she tries to do it over and over again because she sees if people are affectionate to each other or, enjoying it then it's a good thing you know and not holding her down or fucking violating her and stuff you know yeah she's trying to solve the riddle of sex yeah exactly <laughs> but uh yeah so you see that and then um and then for me too there's a lot of cool scenes there's a uh, number eight on the list people dancing in a club you see that you see the palm trees on the beach and what's cool is um so the countess's house there's a scene where they're sitting on the floor and there's the windows out looking on the beach and my eagle eye caught the red and white checkered floor of that room. And then I remembered back to the last film, Les Urban Alice, where they were stripping and you see the red and white checkered floor. So that's the same room that the countess's houses or room is, is the club in the last film where the girls were stripping. They just oh. put some in front of the windows and had that little area, you know, mm-hmm. I was like, Oh, that's the same floor as the last film. Okay, cool. You know, so they use that room for that. So that, that I thought was pretty cool. Um, so then we see um, Ann Liebert and her get together. And they become a couple, and they have their ups and downs. And uh, she ends up meeting Kali Hansa at like the club. She sees her. Uh, well, actually, first she, first she takes uh, Ann Liebert's boyfriend, Paco, and they become an item. And then uh, Paco's wife catches him with her. And then she says, well, and then he says, oh, well, she's nothing and stuff. And he just throws her away like for nothing. And that's her, one of her second, or actually first she felt dissed by Ann Lieber's character because she went on vacation and she felt like, well, you leave on vacation. So then when she went on vacation, she uh, uh, had that, I'm sorry, I'm mixing stuff up. Anyway, so she takes Paco and then Paco's wife kicks him out. And Paco's wife, I made notes, was really cool. Um she was in uh, Dracula's Daughter. Uh, she plays, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Daughter of Dracula, because Dracula's Daughter is, yeah. Well, also, it's called Dracula's Daughter as well, or Daughter of Dracula. She's the lady that runs the hotel that also plays Jess Franco's wife, and she's in Silence of the Tombs as well. Uh, she was a Russian actress. I looked her up. She's in uh, Werewolf Against the Vampire, or Werewolf Against the Vampire Woman, the Paul Nashie one. She plays Nashie's wife in that. And she's uh, in a few uh, Spanish um, Paul Nashi films and stuff. And she did a few horror films. But, yeah, she's a Russian actress that lived in Spain, and she did films over there. Uh, the few films I've seen her in, I was always really impressed. I thought she's a really good actress and stuff. But uh, her part in this is really small. 
she's in it for like two minutes. She tells him like, you know, get the little whore out of here and then we'll talk about it later and I'll see if, you know, I want to keep you on and stuff, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I got uh I wrote it down, but oh yeah, her name is um Yelena Samarina. Yeah, yeah. She uh yeah, her first film was in nineteen fifty eight and uh she's all another Franco film she's in is uh Night of the Skull, which is a few films after this, and then Silence of the Tombs before this and that. But uh yeah, so she's she's really cool. Um so then we go into uh, a cool scene with um uh where she meets uh Kali Hansa and Kali Hansa's is I thought fucking fantastic in this. Uh she looks so goddamn dynamite. Like this is like her third film for Franco and the last two films, she's like, this is like the peak of Kali Hansa. She's just, I mean, on a physical form and her attitude or everything, she's just, she's fucking amazing. I don't know. It's, I, I don't know. Seeing this, I just, I liked Kali Hansa before, but goddamn, she's, she's way up there and watching this movie in like the Franco girls. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was fucking marking out for fucking Kali Hansa big time, man. She's just, yeah, her necklace, her clothes and, and she brings a young girl in, and, and they go on the photo shoot with um, Doris Thomas. And Doris Thomas has been in quite a few of the last few, few Franco films. And this, she has a small part as the uh, German photographer. And she's really cool because uh, she has the really cool music with her that she has. And she has her suitcase in her room, and you see her open it. And she takes out this needle. And he kind of does it. I was watching how he shoots it. He, he like... She puts the needle in this bag. You really don't see it. You really don't see the needle in her hand. She's almost like faking it. I don't even know if she's even holding the needle. But she mimics and she shoots herself in the leg. And then she calls the girls next door and says, hey, I'm your neighbor. I'm a photographer. I want to shoot pictures of you and that. And then the girls start like fucking. And then she like takes the phone and she like puts it down her pantyhose and puts it right in her vagina. And the vibrations from their moaning she gets off on. I thought that scene was so fucking cool. That was such a good Franco scene to me. Yeah, it was also just so, like, it didn't make any sense. I mean, like, how That's probably why I liked it. (laughs) Yeah, like, why did the girls start moaning? And, like, you know, she can't hear them moan when it's down in her pussy. So it was just like a Well, I think, because she says on, on the Italian one how... She had heard him through the wall, so I think she heard him through the walls first, and 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 so like I was thinking they're about the character. We're doing what they left the phone off. The well, well, no, like they were fucking, and she was next door, so she could hear him through the walls, and she was like sexually frustrated and stuff, and she was getting off on it. So it's almost like a Frank Booth thing. She like ejected herself with a drug and got it, you know, and then called and then put the phone in her vagina, and like they're like I said, they're moaning the vibrations. She felt it and went through her body and. I yeah. just thought it was a cool, almost like a David Cronenberg, like an alternative sex kind of thing. I just, <laughs> it's fucking so basic, but so fucking creative. I just. Yeah, there are several like scenes where there's that, like, um, sexual frustration uh, playing out that just really. That, uh, there, I mean, the part where, you know, when, not to get ahead, I guess, but when Vernon uh, rejects her um, in the, yeah. the sort of earlier and in their relationship and. Um, she just writhes around like a cat in heat on the bed, just like, you know, ah, like she's just going to die if she doesn't get laid. And I don't know. It's funny. And what's Maybe. cool is the music in that scene where she has that scene is, is in uh, the erotic rites of Frankenstein. When all, when they conjure up all the spirits that come up from hell, all the, all the skull masks and shit, 
it's that same piece because I was reading about it's the same piece where they all come to life. So I go, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like the song where all the demons come up from hell is the same, her torment in her bed, you know, going through all of her frustrations and such, you know, because she can't get laid. <laughs> it's funny. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so then, okay, so this is a Kali Hansa, and then they take photos uh, for the photographer. They do a really cool scene with her. And then uh, we see a, a, a mirror scene, which is cool. She's all, like, tripped out, and she's all drugged out, and Paco finds her, and she's laying on the floor in this club, and she, like, climbs up and starts petting the mirrors and starts rubbing the mirrors, and she yells at him, and he takes her away. And uh, there's a jazz trumpet uh, when the wife wakes up. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, okay. I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. Kali uh, Hounds has the same necklace I mentioned as Love Personalities. And uh, there's a scene where she's talking to the guy's wife and she's rubbing herself that we had kind of talked about how the wife never sees herself naked or her husband naked. And Collie Hounds is kind of like rubbing herself. And she says, well, does it turn you on or does it turn you off? And the wife goes, well, a little bit of both. And she's kind of like unassured. And she's kind of like you're saying, kind of tempting her. She's kind of, Collie's testing the waters to kind of see where this woman is or where her yeah. loyalties lie, you know. Before, when I was saying that, 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 that scene. Yeah. That whole tension, that fear, like you were saying, yeah, that, that's fucking cool. Forever chasing that. It's terrible of of me and of all of us who chase that because we all do. We all, we all, you'll, you want to be the one who corrupts, you know, like the, the sweet innocent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all, you know, you're not supposed to say that, but it's true. Like you want to find, you know, it's, it's just that whole virgin horror comp. You want to find the, the right. virgin you know, a sweet girl and, and show her down the dark path of <laughs> lust. And yeah. But, <laughs> but then if you think about it, it's almost like, like, like doing drugs and going, well, do I want to turn on somebody to drugs for the first time? Or do I want to, you know, let them find it themselves, you know, or do I want to be the person that introduces something to this person? Sometimes it's good not to introduce certain aspects to people. I think. Depends on the person, but I mean, I, uh, the person and the stage and their time in their life. To get a person to drop ass, that have diff, diff flowered men and women, and it, it's it's a wonderful thing to do. You have, somebody has to do it after all. See, but but there's also people like that too. Like, oh, I got so and so into, you know, Jess Franco yeah, I mean, or David Lynch or with films, you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I think it's that. I think it's that ownership mentality, kind of. Yeah. You're trying to I mean, own that, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's that predator thing that I think people worry about. They, you know, they, they, you know, we all view each other like predator and prey. And, oh, yikes. Are we frozen? You there? Uh, it's saying red bars, but I can it's still hear you. Weird. But, okay, the audio is the good, so okay. that's, that's the important part, but you're just kind of breaking up a little bit on the video. Oh, that's, now you're back. There you go again. again. Yeah. Sorry. No, okay. But, uh, yeah, so... So yeah, so I haven't the, seen you move for. Yeah. I know it's funny. It's just the motion, I guess. I don't know. Um, the motion of the ocean, <laughs> just like we were talking about. No. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the, the 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 whole dynamic of the predator prey in this is is strong. You know, like I was saying that the the the, the women over the women, the the men over the women, the the women over the men. It's they're they're constantly flipping who's the predator, who's the prey, and yeah. and that's you know, I mean, that's uh, what do they always say with the whole you know BDSM thing? You know, like you have to 
do both sides to really understand either side. So. Right. Which that's, you know, you can say that with anything in life, you know, walk a mile in another person's shoes or you see how the other half lives or whatever. It's that same dynamic, definitely, you know, see how being submissive though. Those things you do have to like really kind of dive into on both sides to really understand the, you know, right. which, which one you want to take, which role you prefer and, and are able to, Sorry, it's just like how I relate everything to wrestling. You either want to do babyface or you want to do heel. So, <laughs> so, um, but yeah. So we have um, jump back into Franco. We have uh, um, so yeah. We have that scene where uh, they all smoke weed, like I was talking about earlier. And Kali Hansa's laying on the floor and she's rolling around, and two guys uh, rape her, like in the corner, and. Franco doesn't show it salaciously, really, which is cool. He just kind of shows the guys kind of leaning over her and see her face, you know. And then they're arrested. Uh, cops come in, bust the place up, <clears throat> and they're taken away. And uh, then we finally see Howard Vernon. So for me, it's either Howard Vernon's the lead in the movie or he's only in, like, ten minutes of a movie. And this is one of those movies where the last film, he's the lead. And this one, he's only in it for, like, just a short time which is always a drag to me. And that's usually how Howard Vernon is. He's, uh, you know, only on screen for a little bit, but he's the photographer again on this as Mario Lippert is his, is his alias. So he's always the set photographer, which is awesome. And I think for my films, uh, cause I do a lot of the uh, set photography, I'm going to put a uh, Mario Lippert as the, uh, set photographer. So nice. You know, give old Mario Lippert a fucking credit. Yeah. Cause Mario Lippert's not a real person. It's like Alan Smithy or anything, you know? So, yeah. um, Okay, so I love Howard Vernon. So you finally see Howard Vernon in this. Uh, he plays the doctor, which I like, like Dr. Orloff. Or, and it's cool that he's always like, certain characters. I and mean, he plays a mad scientist or a doctor. It's, it's always an extra little smile, you know. And doctor has a fucking cool Dr. Orloff castle. His house is like a fucking castle. So jumping ahead. So anyway, you go through the line. He bails her out and says, you need to stay with me. And he's going to treat her and try to that's his penance. That's his thing. He wants to take her on and see if he can, that's his, his experiment. He wants to mind control. This is his mind control. He wants to control her mind. He wants to try to give her the experiment, the treatment, what he wants to do, this and that. And he's all dressed in white. He has cool fucking glasses. Yeah. And he has, uh, so he takes her, so he takes her to his house and you go to his house. It's fucking amazing. He has two parrots out front because I love parrots in the film. His parrots on my list. They don't talk, but they, but they are sitting there. And he has like this cool like altar thing in front of his house. It's almost like an Aztec fucking thing or something. I don't know. It's like a castle. So it's like the fucking Dr. Orloff's castle. So he yeah. takes her in the fucking castle and, and uh, gives her the room and stuff. And she says, oh, yeah, this house reminds me of a house that I lived at when I was young. And he kind of goes into her story and she tells, you know, I was young. I left to go to the city and, and I wanted to kind of see how life is and blah, blah, blah and stuff. So, so the scene we had talked about earlier, uh, she wakes up partway through and she has this like fit and she's like naked and excited. And Howard Vernon opens the door and he's not wearing a shirt. And he's like looking at her and you see in his eyes, the temptation. And he, he kind of like goes a little bit. And he goes, get some sleep, this and that and stuff. And he like closes the door real fast, which I thought that was really cool because you see right there that, at that time, he's a good person, and, and he has those temptations, and he's 
fighting is temptation, if, if whatever is temptation, whatever, or you call it something else. But he's trying to show her as an example, hey, I could easily do this with you, but I'm trying to show you this side. Show yeah, you you're frozen again. And uh, so, yeah, but I can't hear you. I, I can I hear you, though. You so. just, you are. Okay, there you go. But uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, so, we're just, no, I, I keep just. Yeah, I know you're yellow bars now. So, but actually, we are recording, so we're we're good on that the whole time. So yeah, I'm uh, just like you know, in case you're asking me a question, and I'm like, no, that was good. No, I know I kind of ramble, but uh, yeah. So you see that scene with Howard Vernon, and then uh, he has the cool glasses, cool outfit, blah blah blah. So then later, she is frustrated and she sneaks out uh, to go to the club and meets the guy. And he sees her outside of the place, uh, of his place. And she's talking to a guy and he realizes, oh, shit, she went out with her or whatever. And in his mind, he thinks that she's still a prostitute and that she just picked him up and fucked him for money. So then she sneaks back up into her room and he asks her where she was. And then he flips and says, well, you're just a prostitute and I'm going to take my bill out now for the treatment I gave you. And then he rapes her. And that to her is probably the final straw where she flips and the one person that she trusted that helped her and was a good person actually just wanted to fuck her too. And, and in a violent way where it's not a loving thing of just him telling her to get dressed or get undressed, he fucks her and tells her, get dressed, you prostitute, get out. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, she was just staring off into space and he's just ramming into her like, you know, right. she's a, a whole... It was, that was rough. <laughs> yeah, and it's oh. fucked too because like this is two films back to back where Howard Vernon turns into one. Well, I mean, Al Al Pereira <clears throat> is a down on his luck, unscrupulous guy. But in the end, when he when he stabs you know the woman and because she was a man, you're like, oh man, you know, and he does that. And in this, it's like he's a good doctor, and it's a shorter time, but you know, he helps her and then he rapes her. You're like, oh man, you're a fucking asshole too, you know. So it's like. It sucks that he has to flip like that, but I guess that's the character arc for him, you know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's disturbing. Yeah, it is. It's a very disturbing scene. So then um, we have uh, lots of red lights in the nightclub, and you have uh, Ann Liebert with her drink. Oh yeah, so Ann Liebert. I haven't really been talking about her too much. She's really cool in this. I thought uh, I'm a big Ann Liebert fan, and uh, it's cool to see her in this as the Countess. And she has a supporting role, and but and she's like, she's not as strong as Kali Hansa and stuff because she's like, there's so many interesting people in this film where she's kind of awashed, you know. Yeah, I honestly can't even think of who she was in the film. Uh, she was the countess, the one yeah. I talked about, like in the beginning. Yeah, she was like the the rich woman who first was with Paco, and then she was made love to him, and and then uh, Linda saw her peeking over the oh. couch. God, I was thinking that was Kali. Okay. I'm no, 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 no. That was the, the Countess. Her. <laughs> Kali okay. Hansa is Maria, the dancer, the Brazilian nightclub dancer, they called her. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, the yeah. Countess. And, uh, yeah, and she's the one that talks to the wife in the beginning and tells her, you know, about her being molested as a kid, that part of her story. And then Kali Hansa tells her the next part of the diary and stuff, you know, and, and all that stuff. But she had been with her, and she was like the older kind of the first lesbian that showed her to be with a woman and described her as being small, you know, that, it, that she was hurt with other men and stuff. And she had to be with her and this and that and stuff. So and she's the one that runs on the beach with her and it's all lovey dovey and stuff in the beginning. Her first positive relationship that she's in is with her. Yeah. 
it was weird how she was how she was so loving with her you were saying that you know she she saw her with a loving relationship with her husband but then when they're running on the beach she's talking about how she had never had an orgasm with a man and because she was very tight and and, and men hurt her every time and um uh, and but with her she was able to have an orgasm and and they they had fused together and it seemed like that was like they were really lesbians or something and yeah you know, and they do make a big impassioned kind of speech about being lesbians at some point, like where she talks about how, you know, there's no judgment on anything is possible in love with, you know, a man and a woman. They say love has no, you know, bounds and laws fair in love and war, but then people get upset if it's the same sex and how she thought that was so silly. So it, it honestly seems like a lot of it is like she's a lesbian and, and she's just kind of like feels like she has to do this shit with men because society and whatever else. But she really only kind of wants to be with women. It seems the whole time. She, there's no yeah. man to get into. She kind of hates men. It's, I don't know. I like that aspect to it. Yeah, because in the very end, you see before the end of the end, she is uh, the doctor raped her. She decided to go back with Collie Hansel's character Maria, but she said it just wasn't the same. And then you see Anne Liebert's character cloaked in red, red light on her, dancing with Paco, who was already, you know, Paco was the guy who was married to another woman and then was with Anne Liebert's character, then left her to go with Linda and then went back with Anne Liebert. And Anne Liebert was just like the in-between, just kind of didn't want to be alone, you know, just kind of staying with somebody or whatever, that type of thing. So, um, but uh, yeah, so I'll go ahead and wrap this up because we're getting close to the end here. And uh, Miss Colley looks like she's uh, getting a little <laughs> shut eye here. Awesome. Start, start loser. So, uh, so yeah. So this is what I like. So at the very end, um, the wife basically goes back. Colley Hansa asks her if she can have the diary uh, for her, and takes the diary, and then realizes that uh, her husband is a piece of shit, and that he needs to actually pay for what he did for molesting her. So instead of keeping the diary, she decides to throw the diary in the water. And uh, But before that, uh, when she's running along the coast, we see, for the first time in the film, sailboats. There's no sailboats in the film, just bodies of water, because sailboats are always escape, and sailboats are always uh, to, to go off into something. So at the very end, she, the, you see sailboats finally. And you see boats on the harbor and sailboats and boats in the water. So it's finally escape so she takes the fucking diary and throws it in the water and then it freeze frames on the diary floating in the water which would suck if if they actually threw away the real diary with all the cool drawings and shit if that was the thing that actually went in the water which knowing his budget it probably was you know but like that's a cool piece that it'd be cool like to be in a museum you could look at the fucking you know yeah, like a totally. thing you know like in a hard rock cafe or whatever or some, <laughs> or some fucking cruise. <laughs> Yeah, also cheese sliders and the uh, diary from uh, Sinner over there, table 12. Yeah. <laughs> and a bunch of pieces of paper written on. Yeah, <laughs> bubblegum segment. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Last <laughs> shot, and then you see the credits. You see everybody's name finally at the end. And uh, cool song, cool ending, I thought. It was a very empowering ending. He likes the, the cool female empowerment ending where the, you know, throw away the thing and off you go, you know, and. I thought it was a good fucking strong positive ending, you know, compared to yeah. the last film. Last film had a downbeat ending where he stabs the woman for being a man and then wanders off the beach by himself. And here the woman 
decides the guy is a piece of shit and he needs to pay for his crime. So she throws away the piece of evidence against him into the water. So, you know, it's like a positive thing, even though it's negative for him because now he's fucking in prison for the rest of his life, you know. Yeah, for a mean, crime he didn't commit. <laughs> really? I mean, think about it. The guy didn't kill her. Yeah, no, I mean, I, the, the thing that I thought was great was that um, it wasn't like his... Um, I mean, his wife, you know, deciding that he deserves to be punished is one thing, but the main thing was, I really appreciated that the woman who even, I mean, it's, you know, it's a shame that she killed herself. I mean, that, that isn't ideal. Um, but, you know, obviously she, she was overwhelmed with pain and that was her ticket off. But she, the way that she did it to frame him and instead of, cause she could have killed him. Right. That's the thing. That's what that, I was thinking when I was watching that thinking the other way. Yeah. Go ahead. So I, I always think of this in films. I get really upset when like the revenge is to kill someone because to me, that's letting them get away with it completely because they did whatever to you and then they died. They don't think about it anymore and they never suffer. There's no suffering in death at all. And murder is, is not revenge. Like, and it, it, it drives me insane how often they use that. And then they're like, Oh, I killed you. Ha ha. I got you. And it's like, you didn't get anything. That person got away with everything. Their life just is over, but they don't right. know that they just don't exist anymore. So it, it, it I, I, I can't stand revenge films like that, but I mean, you know, I, I like enough of them, but my point is that I like clever revenge where you're trying to get the person to actually like suffer. You know, if you're really, if you have like, you know, like righteous anger, I mean, if someone raves you, you know, you, you, you don't want them to just like be dead and never feel bad about it. I mean, you want them to like sit in a fucking cage for years and just yeah. feel like, you know, I did this to myself and, you know, and like and ruminate and, and have every day you have to wake up and be alone with your, you know, your horrible, crappy self thoughts in, in your little cage and you just stay there year after year, day after day, day after day. That's revenge. And that's what she decided to do to him, which you got to give it up. I mean, yeah, she, it's, she shouldn't have killed herself, but I mean, you know, it, it I, I liked that a lot as far as how she got her revenge on her rapist was to basically like, you know, entrap him into, into, into getting the justice that she never got. You know, she, she got her justice, which is a thing that never happens in the world. It's funny, just us sitting here talking about it, me listening to you, I just thought of another thing, which is really pretty funny. In Franco films, he always shows the police are so inept. And you see that with a lot of, and same with this. I just thought about that. Like I was saying, the guy didn't commit the crime, but he's serving the time and the police are so inept that he is serving that thing for not doing that, you know? And that's another funny thing. I was like, I didn't even catch that till just now, you know? Yeah. Franco is always, you've you've mentioned this before about how he always does does the inept cops. cops Yeah. He's the inspector in this. And there's a cool part where he's sitting thinking, he does like a little trumpet thing. He goes, like with his lips he's like thinking like, <laughs> like yeah like yeah exactly. so cool you know uncle jazz yeah uncle jazz a little jazz a little time so but uh yeah no this was a good film like i was saying i thought like lesser banales was the male film while um secret diary of nymphomaniac was the female flip side of this and he filmed these right back to back with a lot of the same cast same locations and uh some of the same themes starts off with the strip club and there's a strip club element, a lot of it and stuff, and, and some of the similar stuff, you know. Um, no House of Vice in this. No Little Red Room. But uh, I think the Red Room scene in this was uh, Doris putting the phone down her pantyhose with her vagina. I thought that was the Red Room scene to me, where it's just like, where all of a sudden it just took a turn, you know. 
her with the moans and the shooting up and shit. That was like the blue velvet scene to me. I was like, okay, this is fucking cool. You know? Yeah, I'll, I'll give that. Yeah, and not yeah. But well, uh, yeah, no. So I I uh, recommend it. And then also too, I was reading another person wrote that this is actually a good film to show um, Franco virgins. Like if you want to get people into like just Franco films, like this is a good film to kind of like introduce them to people because it's pretty accessible. It's got a good message. It's really well made, you know. Um, it's not overly gratuitous, you know. <laughs> it's got beautiful women, got great locations, got cool music. It's got a lot of good stuff to it. It's not too weird, you know. Um, you know, but good acting. Yeah, it's a solid one for sure. And last but not least, I should have mentioned um, Montserrat Prouse, who plays Linda Vargas. She's really good. She's uh, this was, I think, like her third or fourth Franco film, and she does quite a bit. And she was like. Uh, with Signs of the Tomb, she started with him and goes all the way through, and she's in like every Franco film for a little while during this period. She's really beautiful and a really good actress, and she's really good in this. The last film she played, the hooker with the heart of gold that got whipped and killed, you know, that was with um, Howard Vernon's character, you know. She was his helper that, you know, that got whipped and beat up by Kali uh, Hans's character, you know, and tortured and shit by Doris Thomas, who was the photographer in this one, so. So yeah, that was cool. But uh, but yeah, so I don't know. Um, anything else you want to say about this film before we wrap it up? Um, no, just uh, I yeah, I just I think what I already said, just that you know uh, I love seeing like the so-called nymphomaniac portrayed from kind of all sides. That she has her her own doubts and her own wonderings of who she is, why she is this way, and and you know she's externalizes the blame. She you know internalizes the blame. She uh, other people blame her. Other people feel sorry for her. Other everybody has all these different feelings about her, but nobody really knows, not even herself, who she is because she's just kind of lost in the world and she's just, you know, she's she's so broken. It's it's just I mean, it's sad in the end, you know, that she she dies and all that. I mean, it's, it, it, but yeah, it's you know, it's it's just a well done way of of making a woman more, um, a woman's sexuality more you know, encompassed, not just so one-sided how it's right. Not just the titillation and the salaciousness of it, but the actual mental and emotional and everything all around it. Not, you know, and the fallout and the everything, not just, you know, yeah, the experience. Right. But uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, it's going to say something, but I totally spaced it, but yeah, no, this is, uh, a very, very, like a very cool film. Um, is, is this one of your favorites of, of the Franco? Like, is this your top 10 or? I wouldn't say top 10, but it's really up there, like top 20. I mean, I, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I like the really skeezy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. watched Midnight Party, and that to me is like my new favorite. I'm obsessed with that kind of stuff. Like, where, you know, right, right, right. Well, wow. that's, that's my stuff. But I'm, you know, I'm a creep, so. But no, there is, like I said, there are a few plot elements in this that he reuses later, and I always think that. Something's pretty good if you if you take pieces from it and use it in other things later on. So that shows you that like this had a lot of good parts to it. That the parts like if you think about a car, like it had a good engine, it had a good water pump, it had a good muffler, and he used the muffler in another film, he used the water pump in another movie, and he used the engine in this film, and you know he uses pieces of it in this other stuff, and it's pretty cool to kind of see that aspect of it and stuff. But uh, yeah, 
other people are that if the writers, you know, their first book is pretty much what they're going to say in all the rest of their books. They're just going to rework it and change. I mean, you can see that pattern in, in almost all artists. They, they, they kind of already say what they're going to say within their first few works. They just learn how to say it better or say it more nuanced or say it more cleverly or say it more funny. Or it's just, it's different reiterations of how you're saying this thing that you have to get out of you. It's what I always see in, in, in the artists that, that do a lot of, of work. And I don't know, I think Jess is just, he just has that. He knows kind of what he wants in his mind to get across. And, and when you ask about favorites, actually, I was thinking that as far as like, I, I mean, yeah, this would be a favorite to me in this kind of realm of, of films that he does. This would be tops in there. But I mean, it, it's all a mood, right? Like, you know, it depends on what you're in the mood. And it, right. Something for every mood in his, you know, uh, collection or what have you. And so, yeah, this, this one is, is definitely top tier in its, you know, in its genre, whatever you call it. Yeah, his his his, his uh, canon. Um, also, too, one thing I forgot to bring up in the Countess's uh, room when we first see her, uh, not with the guy, but later on in her house, she has a um, sheepskin rug right next to the chair, and so I was like, "Yeah, sheepskin rug." I my eye went to, and that was, and that's pre Dietrich era too, where he didn't have the sheepskin in, in it in every film. But yeah, I caught there, but no I masturbation, was, no I magic tongue. You got your whole checklist, didn't you? You got everything. Well, let's see. Actually, let me let me let me kind of uh, throw this in because I I actually didn't hit it, but let me go through. So this one, number one, body of water, yes. Number two, sailboat, yes. Three boats, yes. Palm trees, yes. Jungle sound effects. There was birds I heard uh, that they palmed in or they they piped in. Um, but number six, chained up person. There's no chained up person in this film. Unless you say she's chained up by her emotion. Oh, exactly. Uh, number seven, dancing scenes on stage stripping. Yes, right in the beginning. Uh, number eight, club scenes dancing. Yeah, there are people dancing as couples in a club, big time. Number nine, jazz music. Yes. Number 10, excessive zooms. Not necessarily. Um, number 11, out of focus shots. He was actually pretty good on this, a few. Number 12, mirror shots. Yes. Uh, 13, mind control. That theme I talked about the doctor trying to change her mind to be yeah. a certain way of thinking and she wanted to stay. Yeah, so I think that definitely discounts mind control theme. Plus, he's the doctor and in their fucking right. institute. Um, 18 fish tank shots, no. 19 talking parrots, half point. There's two parrots in front of doctor's place, but they don't talk. Uh, number 20, in credits, yes or no? Yes, very good in credits. And when you spoke of number 21, handwritten note, no handwritten notes, and no spiral staircase shots. So there's the Franco uh, checklist that we snuck in before the end of the episode. Nice. Yeah, Woo! So, Woo! Way to um, go out. So, yeah, if you want to get a hold of uh, Franco Observer Podcast, you can get a hold of us at uh, FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com. We have a Instagram page, we have a Facebook page. And uh, please download and subscribe, uh, rate and share. Tell all your friends about the Franco Observer podcast. Uh, right now, this is episode 47, so we're three more away from being 50 episodes. So, uh, yeah, it's like maybe 50 hours of or plus of listening for Franco chatter and all that good smatter. So, and that's what matters. So. All righty. Well, uh, thank you, Kali, for joining me again from Los Angeles via Zoom. I heard some fireworks going off by where you were at earlier. 
Oh yeah, they're not going to stop. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, right now, I'm actually pretty good. The last couple of nights, it's been going on at like eight o'clock to about ten. So you know, but yeah, Sunday night so far we're okay over here. So yeah, my kids well, will be freaking out this weekend. Yeah. So well, I hope your you and your pets have peace during these next few days of loud bangs and uh, all that good stuff. So cheers. Yeah. All right. Hang. Thank you. <laughs> All right, well, uh, with those words, I will say good night and have a pleasant tomorrow. Cheers. Cheers.